Merry Christmas. It's the right time for that, two weeks ahead. Right? You get to do that now? All right. And I, I do want to check through my notes. Um, throwing Jim under the bus for the bulletin mistake. Done. Um, I'd like you to, uh, and I didn't write down the, the page in the Bible. I love that we do that, and I didn't do it. Um, but we're, we're going from this reading in Isaiah 9, chapter 6. If you could find your way to there, I'm going to recite the passage that we've been preaching on and, and taking these um, titles for Messiah that were given to Isaiah and that he communicated and we're going through one each week. Isaiah 9, uh, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. This Advent season, we've been looking at these titles, and so far we've examined, Dave, Wonderful Counselor. And last week, Mighty God. Next week, Highland Goodland is going to speak on probably the most familiar title of the four, right? The Prince of Peace. And today... I'm going to be talking about the one that I know, for me, confuses me the most. Eternal Father. Everlasting Father has long been um, the most difficult title for Messiah for me to figure out. And it is one of those places in Scripture, and I um, understand very well, um, because I do it myself, sometimes I'm reading through God's Word, and I get to a difficult part, and, and I really just have to move past it. Right? Have you ever read Russian literature? Like Tolstoy? If you try to pronounce those names in your head while you're reading, you will never get through those thick works. You just have to, oh, Mr. T, and bleep over it. And there's places in Scripture that work like that. Everlasting Father... But he's the son, I'm a prince of peace, and move on to Christmas. But I relish the opportunity because I find great satisfaction in um, putting to rest a difficult part of Scripture by taking the time to understand it as fully as I can. But we do know that we do not approach Scripture with merely scholarly efforts. We don't just set our nose to the grindstone and work out answers from Scripture. There is definitely a place for scholarly work and for the scholarly work of others who've come before us. But spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. And it is foolishness to approach such a task without humility and prayer. So join with me then as we go before God's word to seek understanding of the words by which he wants to build us 
and encourage us and nurture us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word so readily available. It is, in fact, on our hands, before our eyes, the word of the living God. Lord, it is in our own language. This is not the experience of all who trust in you. It is the gift from you that we have your word in our own language. Lord, that we are able to read. Also a gift from you. So may we put these gifts, Lord, to their best purpose to glorify you by humbly asking, Lord, speak to us today through your word. Give us that gift of yourself that you mean to give. Help us to understand beyond our objective logic and into the depths of spiritual wisdom who you are and whose we are. We ask this in the name of your precious Son, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, let's start with a couple things that we know and kind of recapping. Isaiah wrote about 700 years before Christ came. In our historical context, that is actually before, if we went back 700 years, we're 200 years before Martin Luther. We're up to the very early reformers like Wycliffe and, and Huss that, uh, that started the, this recapture of God's Word, tran Bible translation, and, and making God's Word available to the common person, unlatching it from, from the unapproachable altar. 700 years we have had God's Word openly available to us in our hands. For 700 years, the people of Israel had the promise of Messiah. These promises written by Isaiah, waiting to see the meaning, the fulfillment. And Isaiah was led by the Holy Spirit to name these four titles for Messiah, even though he didn't necessarily understand them. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, right, right at the outset, Peter says that Though the Old Testament prophets sought to understand, they prayed and asked to understand, what is this that I'm writing? What God revealed to them was that they were writing for someone else, for a future people, for whom this fulfillment would be crystal clear. So they were servants of ours. They were servants of the people of the time of Jesus, Messiah. So, we can be quite certain that Isaiah didn't have any notion of the Trinity as we hold it in our minds today when he was writing that Messiah would be named Everlasting Father. The conflict I have is looking back through church history, well, 
Okay, first I have to look back through my Sunday school experience, right? The real near history. But then all of church history and, and the, the writings and the, um, the councils of the early church, I'm looking at this word with an understanding of Trinity, looking backwards, that Isaiah didn't have looking forward. That's what makes it confusing for me. We're just looking at the same title in different directions. So as I seek to understand that title, I need to set aside that logical conclusion that comes from my more complete revelation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I expect that Isaiah would have had more trouble with a virgin shall conceive than with Messiah being named Everlasting Father. But I also want to be careful in this confusing statement that it doesn't lead us into a picture of God that he is sometimes in father mode. One God is sometimes in the mode of father and sometimes in the mode of son and, and then sometimes in the mode of spirit. This is uh, a, a false understanding of the nature of God that was settled, though it comes back from time to time, it was settled in the days of the early church, and uh, not surprisingly, it was called modalism. That there is one God, and sometimes we see him in this mode, or that mode, or the other mode. I don't want to think of, oh, this is Jesus, everlasting Father. I don't, I don't want to lose what Scripture really defines when it affirms Trinity and incarnation and who Christ is. The interesting thing for us uh, that we have all of the revealed truth of God, all of the images of Jesus are laid side by side. We know him from the garden as the one promised to crush the head of Satan. We know him as the only worthy king promised to be in the line of Judah. We know him as the son of David whose kingdom will never end. And of course we know him as the suffering servant. Very, very clear, very familiar. He came to give his life as a ransom for many and we know him as the fearsome king of kings and Lord of Lords, graphically described in the book of Revelation. A warrior, a judge with a rod of iron, a babe in a manger. Same Jesus at the same time. So then we encounter him at Christmas, this helpless babe, and it's hard to visualize these grander truths about who Jesus is. We could, in fact, fall into the same trap that the modalist falls into. That Jesus, as, as the babe, helpless, will someday become the mighty king. And now, he's the man upon the cross but he will be the resurrected Savior. But for now, he's just this. 
You see how we can, we can fall into that same sort of trap. But make no mistake, the, the helpless child adored by the rich scholars that we call kings or the helpless night watchmen that we call shepherds is at the same time the alpha and the omega. Undiminished glory hidden in the form of human flesh, the one who is, who was, and who is to come here among us. Hebrews 13.3 affirms that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same in the manger, upon the cross, upon the throne. So what we have in Isaiah's proclamation is the eternal nature and character of Messiah. The passage that I selected, that, that Chris read for us, is one of my favorites. It's a great description of this uh, eternal nature of Messiah. Although Simeon, as an element of the Christmas story, sometimes gets left out. You know, it, it's kind of fair. His role comes in about a little more than a month after Jesus is born. Um, when you read in Leviticus and, and you, you see these appropriate steps that are described here, when the time was right, well, a, a baby goes to be circumcised, a baby boy eight, eight days in. But after a total of 33 days, the parents take the child to the temple for dedication and actually for the first sin and purification offering. Mary and Joseph brought... Um, they couldn't afford lambs. They brought the humbler offering of a couple of doves or pigeons. And so, what a beautiful picture of eternal majesty there is in this old man encountering this little baby in the temple courtyards Right here, we, we, we heard in the story that, that Simeon was in the Spirit. Now, we, that's another thing we can just bleep over, right? Well, okay, he was a spiritual guy. But when I read in John's Revelation, and John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, I take a much higher meaning. I take that everything revealed in the rest of his writing came from being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So I don't want to take too small of a conclusion about Simeon being in the Spirit and being moved to, oh, I should be in the temple today. And what he knew in the moment that he knew it. And Simeon had a promise. Somehow, he had known. I don't know how early he got it. Maybe. Maybe God told this to him as a young man. And, and he lived his life with great confidence. It's okay. I can climb that rickety ladder. I haven't seen Messiah yet. 
God promised I wouldn't die. Maybe if they had bungee jumping back then, it's cool. I haven't seen Messiah yet. I won't die until my eyes see the salvation of the Lord. Don't play risky business with God's promises like that. But not knowing when he got this promise, he may have carried this delight in his heart all of his days. Days which I'm sure were many. And waiting and waiting. But having been promised, you will see my salvation. And knowing that that will be the end of your days. We don't see anything in Simeon when he sees today is the day. This is the salvation of the Lord. He gives no care for, oh, wait a minute. These are the end of my days. No, because he is seeing salvation. He is approaching death with such confidence because he sees life and salvation and rescue in his very arms. Could any man have ever approached his final days with greater faith than the man who God was telling, this is your rescuer. The one you hold will save you. No begging for one more day, but joyous in God's faithfulness from eternity past right up to his secure eternal future death holds no sting for Simeon because Simeon holds life itself so he takes up the child I, I guess it was okay to take a child and he's holding baby Jesus, in the temple courts. It's probably busy and bustling and things are going on. This is just a, a humble man and his wife and their little baby and an old man that approaches them. But we have him say, now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace. As you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Picture for a moment, he's holding this child. And every word he spoke, I always picture he, he speaks just to the heavens. But every word he spoke would be appropriately said looking into the eyes of that baby. Master. He is holding his creator. He is holding the Alpha and the Omega. Master, now I see how you're saving us with yourself. Now I have complete peace. In his praise song, there is the promise, there's the presence, or the present, and there's the future. 
as you promised. It could refer to his particular promise given to him, which was a wonderful gift, a grace offered to just Simeon for just this day. But as you promised goes all the way back through David and Judah and Abraham and to the garden. The promise of God from the very moment that we needed salvation. Salvation had already begun. Seen your salvation, he says. I have my eyes have seen your salvation. Of course, the baby was in his arms, but it also means the plan. I have seen your way of saving us. You have inserted yourself. I don't know how much Simeon could have had revealed to him in that moment before his, his last day. But he was holding the lamb. He was holding the one who would die for him, for his sin. The perfect process of redemption by which this baby will be marked as both the just one and the justifier of the old man who's cradling him. And that this redemption, this salvation, this promise kept was prepared in the presence of all people. Openly throughout history, God has been working his infallible plan of salvation for mankind, unhindered. In this small vignette, we see elements of that. Imagine the bustle of the temple courts and all the offerings and the pilgrims, and among them, here's this little humble group. People coming and going intending to worship the Lord, walking past Him unknown, going on to their worship. I, I noted the, the last opportunity that I had to, to preach was not at this church. It was at my old church. And a stunning difference. I never noticed it there before, but they have church with the lights off. We have church with the lights on. Uh, and and it's, it, that's a much bigger setting and, and lots of things. But it's so different to stand on the stage and not see past two rows when you know there are like 18 full of people out there. And it's all dark. And preaching in the dark. Jim, I can see you nod your head all the way back there. I can see beyond you, Jim, to Denny going louder, louder. This is, this is church with the lights on. God's salvation went along unhindered in the darkness of a sinful, fallen, rebellious world. 
And, and here, hidden in human flesh, the Savior sneaks into the world to affect our rescue. Lastly, I don't want to miss that the eternal nature of our Savior is in this proclamation of, of this title is linked with the word Father by Isaiah. In John 14, verse 9, Jesus told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Colossians 1 and verse 17, we are told that Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. He is the best representation of the Father's love in action that we could ever have. He demonstrates for us the love of a father. Any father that would give up and lay down his life for his child. Any father that would want the best and call their children up to fulfillment and growth and maturity and supply their every need by his fatherly care and his attention to the growth of those given to him in the proper application of the role, there is hardly a more evocative and heart-touching word than father. His love and care and rescue for us, eternal. The nature of it is eternal. The character of it, fatherly. So what is revealed to us about Messiah's Father's care without beginning or without end? What can we take home from this sort of message, this sort of title? First, His love for you has remained perfect and constant. The fatherly love that we see demonstrated in Christ is without end. It does not begin at your day of decision. It begins at his day of deciding to save. From before the beginning of time, and it will never end, the love of the Father is eternal. The love of the Son is eternal. The love of the Spirit is eternal. If there is one thing that we people who believe fail to grasp and, and cling to, it is the desperate, unyielding, pursuing love of God for us. And make no mistake, His love for you matters far more than your love for Him. Because one of them saves. His love is eternal. And it's care. And His work 
His work to make us holy and right. Completely clean and righteous before Him. A provision that we cannot make for ourselves. Our everlasting Father has made for us. The everlasting provision. This is not a salvation that we must maintain. That we must hold up once given to us. It is secure, it's unaltering, and it's complete. We will continue to experience greater and greater depths of uh, of surrender to God's transforming spirit. And in that we will grow and mature. But you who trust in Christ will never be more righteous in his eyes than you are right now. His glory, his glory is undiminished throughout all time. Jesus did not become glorious. We are not waiting for him to be glorified. We see right now through a clouded glass. We try to come to an understanding of, of the truth that is revealed. And, and we are the greatest hindrance to our understanding. But Jesus, when he speaks of his glory before the Father, he says, you know, that glory that I had with you from the beginning of time, that glory. He has always been glorious. He has always been everything that we ever saw him as, from helpless babe to mighty king. He is the glorious God of eternity. And we who have placed our trust in him, we are wedded to his glory. And we are heirs to his riches. There is no debt that we can bring to this marriage that he cannot pay. There is no need that we can have that he cannot fully provide for. Perhaps in what I'm speaking of, you're hearing of a bonding, of a relationship, of a security, and of a love that you're not really experiencing. Regardless of how familiar you may be with being in church. I said real early in this message, spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. And God the Holy Spirit can be speaking to you right now about your condition before him and about how deeply he loves you. A love that commands response. So at the close of this message, and I assure you it will close, <laughs> I'm going to stay up front for a little while 
And I love it about this church that there will also be an elder here to talk with you and pray with you, explain with you this trust and this love that you may not have until this day known. An eternal, fatherly love that rescues and redeems and reconciles. Truly a joyous, joyous title and wonderful Christmas message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the depth of your love boldly, boldly communicated. Lord, we thank you that you have seen you have seen fit to save us when we find no redeeming features about us. So Lord, we don't even know ourselves. But you call us beloved. And so in that we will stand. And you are everlasting and you don't change. So when you call us beloved, we are eternally your beloved. And in that we can rest finally from our strivings and our wanderings that we are home with you now and only more glories stand before us to be revealed. You are great, Lord, and your love endures forever. Amen.